Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider. We'll get started right after this. Today's episode is presented by Equinor. A question from Equinor. How can our turbines go where no wind turbine has gone before? They float, so they can harvest stronger winds further out to sea. Visit equinor.co.uk. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Today's episode is presented by Lloyd's Banking Group. Everyone deserves a safe place to call home. That's why Lloyd's Banking Group has championed the social housing sector for decades supporting more than 340 housing associations across the UK. If you're from an ordinary working-class family, said Theresa May in that famous speech on the steps of Downing Street in July 2016, life is much harder than many people in Westminster realise. You have a job, but you don't always have job security. You can just about manage, but you worry about the cost of living. And yet, on this, if not on everything, Theresa May was absolutely right. Honestly, Westminster is chock full of politicians and officials and advisers and journalists who really have no clue about how hard life can be for everyday people around the country doesn't mean they're not smart, of course, or necessarily that they're not good at their jobs. But as my excellent co-host Alva discussed in her episode on The Lobby at the start of this season, the general narrowness of life experience in SW1 can really limit the collective worldview. However, today I'm here to remind you that this does not apply to everyone. Far from it. There are also plenty of politicians and journalists who have clambered their way up to the giddy heights of Westminster from pretty challenging starts in life, to say the least. And honestly, few have a better story to tell than my guest on this week's podcast. Jonathan Ashworth is not quite a household name outside of SW1, although he's been a power player in Westminster now for more than 20 years. He joined the Labour Party straight out of university in 2001, and spent most of the noughties working, for his sins, as a special advisor to Gordon Brown. Since 2011, he's been MP for Leicester South, and has spent most of the past decade serving in the shadow cabinets of Ed Miliband, and Jeremy Corbyn, and Keir Starmer. He was shadow health secretary throughout the Covid pandemic, and was then handed the shadow work and pensions brief last year, now writing Labour Party policy on the welfare system upon which he and his family once relied. And that's why he's especially interesting today. Those early years of Ashworth's life really mark him out as different, growing up in a world of shady Manchester casinos, of excess alcohol, of grinding poverty. From Politico, I'm Jack Blanchard, and this week on Westminster Insider, we're going to meet Jonathan Ashworth and hear what makes this working-class mank turned career politician really tick. What inspired him to get out of the mean streets of North Manchester 
and into the grand surrounds of the Treasury. What was it like working so closely with Gordon Brown as Labour MPs plotted to bring him down? And what on earth has he made of the past tumultuous week in politics as Boris Johnson faces his own Gordon Brown-style mutiny? I met John in his offices in Portcullis House on Tuesday, the morning after the night before, if you will, to find out. John Ashworth, welcome to Westminster Insider. Hello. It's been a glorious week in SW1 uh, with plots and coups and attempts to bring down the Prime Minister. Does it bring back your new Labour days? <laughs> well, I mean, it, it has been an extraordinary time. Um, with Tory MPs plotting in corridors, looking grumpy and unhappy. I think Tory MPs on both sides of the argument were looking particularly grumpy and unha- unhappy last night. Of course, I always thought that the Tory MPs should get rid of Boris Johnson because I think they should always act in the national interest. But there were one, one or two of my more mischievous colleagues who, <laughs> who were amused by Monday night's result. But there were. What, what, what do you do if you're in the opposition watching this happen? Do you all just sit in Stranger's Bar laughing at the TV? Well, it is tempting to, to laugh at it. Of course it is. But I still think integrity matters in politics. He has won that vote, but he's fatally wounded. And his government is utterly divided and can't focus on the issues which are affecting people across the country. So, look, on the one hand, you know, you can get sucked into the amusement of the the spectacle. But in the end, I think if you are an opposition who is preparing for government as we are, we want to act in the national interest and it is in the national interest for Boris Johnson to resign. But this is to a degree what governments do, isn't it? Like, listeners might not realise, but before you were John Ashworth MP and Shadow Cabinet Minister, you were John Ashworth the SPAD. I was. I was, I was a um, special advisor for many, many years to Gordon Brown. I was with him in the Treasury when he was Chancellor. I was with him to the end in Downing Street. And, of course, we did have one or two attempts to dislodge Gordon from the leadership. Um, you, you led one or two attempts to dislodge uh, the previous no, Prime Minister. No, 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 I was... No, no. <laughs> It was very. That's what I read. No, well, don't believe everything you read. You should know that you're a journalist. No, I was a very loyal member of the previous Labour government. Very proud of the achievements of the new Labour government. Yeah, but come on, tell us about the plot. Come on. Uh, What was it like when you're in Number Ten and you can see your own party or parts of it, elements of it, trying to dislodge your prime minister? Well, we have a different system in the Labour Party. MPs cannot know confidence a leader and push a leader out. They can try to make things intolerable for a leader when there were colleagues who disagreed and thought that our prospects would be better served by Gordon resigning as leader of the Labour Party and Prime Minister. And it did happen on one or two occasions. We had resignations from the Cabinet, backbench colleagues, sometimes former Cabinet ministers who perhaps were, maybe they'd been a little put out that they were no longer Cabinet ministers, who knows, calling for Gordon to go. Our immediate uh, priority has to be to demonstrate that we still have the broad support across the Parliamentary Labour Party. And in the end, Gordon survived, quite rightly in my view, because he did command broad support. And the reason he commanded broad support, and I think this is the difference with Boris Johnson, is that Gordon Brown had a sense of mission and a sense of a plan on how to respond to the global financial crisis that we were facing. Boris Johnson has no plan, and I think... That is what we'll do for him in the end. The Tory party divided, 
and, got, and Boris Johnson does not know where he wants to take the country or how to protect people through this crisis of inflation that we are currently in. And when you're right in the midst of something like that, like the current number 10 lot are now and obviously were yesterday and over the weekend, those sorts of phone calls to MPs, is it like, is it a frantic thing? Are you desperately ringing them? Are you on our side asking for public shows of support? Is it, you know, is it an intense environment to be working in there? It's intense. Of course, you know, it was a slightly different environment. This is the days before Twitter. I mean, Twitter might have just started, but it wasn't politicians were not on twitter no. was that better i think it probably was i think i'm not sure what twitter has added has added much to the political uh, environment um people didn't have whatsapp so there was not sort of whatsapp groups to organize people which i understand um is increasingly used now by colleagues it's harder to plot and harder to be publicly rebellious in a way yeah i think i think that is correct it's a different news environment you're not expecting you know no, no, people are not scrolling through politicians twitter accounts to see what they've said because they didn't have twitter accounts there is less frenzy around because because you know there, there isn't the sort of social media tools to create it but i still think though this is the froth stuff in the end johnson hasn't got a plan that's why i think this will be fatal for him and you went into politics straight from university basically didn't you essentially you you, you were in labor students and then you just went Straight off to, to into government. I was always interested in politics since as a as a as a teenager. Since I began to started following the news when I was a thirteen year old, I, was, I don't know why I was so obsessed with it. I was. I think my dad instilled in me a sort of a strong sense of social justice, a strong sense of what is right and wrong. I mean, he has I've spoken about before. He had his own problems with alcohol. You know, my mum and dad divorced as a consequence. I mean, he was a croupier in a casino. There were times when um, living with my mum, we, you know, we didn't have much. We had to, had, to, had to rely on the social security system. I mean, I always had this sense that there was injustices in the world and unfairnesses. And for me, the vehicle for changing things and making things better was was the Labour Party. So I got involved in the Labour Party at 15, went to university then became active in the student wing of the Labour Party. From that, got a job working at Millbank Tower for the 2001 general election campaign. And that was where I got to know Gordon Brown, actually, because I was this young researcher. And my job in the 2001 general election campaign was to monitor Conservative candidates. Again, this is the days before Twitter. This is the days before... It's actually... You could barely even Google. Yeah, I think Google was new, and we were still using Yahoo and whatever the other one was. Ask Jeeves. No, Ask Jeeves was fancy. I don't think we're. I used to sort of track down their election leaflets, and I I had a fax machine, and I used to sort of get onto lot local councillors saying, "As soon as you get the election leaflet, fax it to me." And my job was to go through all the election leaflets and catalogue all these Tory candidates taking a more hard-line position on the EU than the position that William Hague had outlined. And I remember doing this sort of dossier of all these Tory candidates, which then Gordon Brown stood up at a press conference and said, uh, well, I could no reveal, <laughs> 100 Tory candidates have betrayed, you know, have gone further than William Hague. And, and, and for me as a 21-year-old, that was astonishing. It was amazing because, or 22, I suppose it must have been by then, amazing, that piece of work that I had done was leading a press conference, which in turn was leading the six o'clock news, which got into the newspapers the next day, and it obviously showed how the Tory party was completely, completely in disarray. But one of the things I should say about that election campaign, 
here is a little claim to fame because I got used to watching all these Tory candidates reading all their material I actually said there's two candidates in this batch who I think will transform the Tory party and I suspect in this batch one of them is the next Tory Prime Minister Osborne and Cameron were the two Tory candidates so I think would transform the Tory party but I predicted Osborne would be the Prime Minister so I got that bit wrong. He did all right for himself. He did all right for himself. He did all right for himself. What did, you, what did you, your, your family make of you getting into politics? Because I imagine most people with a background like yours wouldn't be coming down to work in Westminster. They were immensely proud. My mum still is immensely proud. Um, but, but it is um, sort of tinged with sadness. Because look, my parents were, you know, my dad was a croupier. He left school at 16, was a croupier in Salford. My mum was a bunny girl. Um, at the Playboy Club in Manchester, which um, um, meant she was a waitress, nothing more <laughs> salacious than that at the Playboy Club. They had great stories, by the way, of people who used to come into the Playboy Club. But I'll just quickly tell you this story. It's not uh, about George Osborne, is it? No, it's not about George Osborne. This one's about Jeremy Thorpe. Um, right, even better. Uh, yeah, so at the time that Jeremy Thorpe was on trial, George Carmen was his barrister. George Carmen was a brilliant barrister who loved to gamble. And he was in the... So the story is told. It may have been exaggerated over the years, I don't know. But so the story is told. I mean, George Cameron's not alive anymore, so I suppose if he's not around to tell me whether it's wrong or not. But So George Cameron was a gambler in the Playboy Club and was at the roulette table, I think it was a roulette table, the night before he was supposed to be defending Thorpe the next day or the day before the opening. And my dad... And he was at the roulette table, so the story is told, with all the, the bundles of papers... And my dad had to bundle George Carmen into a black cab at two in the morning <laughs> to send him down to London for the proceedings in the um, uh, in the in the court for Jeremy Thorpe. And of course, he got Jeremy Thorpe off. Must have been a class act. I'm and, impressed. And I think um, well, I don't know if I'm allowed to say this. In them days, you weren't allowed to drink alcohol on the at the roulette table. So they used to give George Carmen. I don't know if he drank whiskey or whatever in a in a cup. So he looked like he was drinking a cup of tea. <laughs> It's an uh, incredible scene for you to be growing up here yeah. now, isn't it? You know, I mean, how different an experience to most of the people down here. Did you ever go to these places, or you just not, you can't because you're a kid, or did you? Hang no, on? I mean, I, I remember going to a Christmas party. Well, I don't say I remember. I was probably about three or four, so I don't remember it very well. I just remember the balloons, for Christmas party at the at the Playboy. But I remember, like, you know, in our life, there was all these kind of characters would come and go on the periphery of our life, different sort of. Weird and wonderful personalities. From rum characters from Manchester. Rum characters from late night Manchester. Not Manchester club scene and all that of the Hacienda. A different side of Manchester, perhaps a, dare I say, slightly seedier side of Manchester. These different personalities and characters would come along. And, in, and then, but my dad's drinking. I mean, he was a, you know, he, he was drinking, Pyrrhon was drinking so much that led to mum and dad breaking up. And me and my mum, we moved to um, a bit of, Manchester, which was near Strangeways Prison, so every night we'd have the big searchlight from Strangeways Prison would pan across where we were, and um, my dad never saw me become an MP, which breaks my heart to this day, and um, towards the end of his life he was drinking a lot, a hell of a lot, like a bottle of whiskey a day, and um, I remember the day before my wedding, he said he couldn't come to the wedding, and I was so cross with him because I knew he'd been, he'd have been, um, it was because of drink. You, when you deal with someone who's got an alcohol problem, you 
bounce between anger and sympathy, between wanting to help and being so, so, so sort of furious. You have such a complex set of emotions. And I was so angry he couldn't come come to the wedding and I could hardly speak to him and I was just so cross with him. And um, uh, a few months later he was dead. And I remember someone saying he felt he couldn't come to the wedding because, you know, people like Gordon Brown and politicians and journalists and were going to be at the wedding. And he felt that these were sort of posh people and that he would embarrass me and... Um, he stayed away and that's you know he wouldn't have embarrassed me as my dad so it's sad so they were immensely proud but it's also immensely you know heartbreaking in a different way for me you've used your position to campaign for sort of on behalf of um children of alcoholics very powerfully speaking about it in parliament it must have been great for you to get the shadow health brief and have the opportunity to do that um, I guess that's something that will always be close to your heart. Yeah, I mean, I, I was the Shadow Health Secretary for five years, which was... Um, my team checked it out on Wikipedia. I'm the longest-serving Labour Shadow Health Secretary in history. I'd much rather have been the real Health Secretary, but anyway. One of the things I wanted to do when I became the Shadow Health Secretary was not just to sort of go on the telly to complain about waiting lists and... You did do that, though, didn't you? I did do that, but I wanted to use it also to speak about something which was very personal to me, which is why I started talking about addiction services. And um, I've run three London marathons for the charity. There's, the T-shirt is underneath Nakoa. You can just that blue T-shirt underneath that. And then I spoke out about it. And actually, to be fair to him, Jeremy Hunt got in touch with me. He was the health secretary at the time, and he said, I was very moved by what you said, and can we work on a joint project together? And... Uh, I said, yeah, definitely. And as a result, went in to meet him with one or two other colleagues in here, like Liam Byrne, who's also impacted by this. And we persuaded Jeremy Hunt to put some funding aside to set up a project to support children of alcoholics. And me and Jeremy Hunt announced it together. We did a joint press release. I don't know if that's the first time in history that a health secretary and a shadow health secretary have done a joint government press release. And we announced it together. We did an interview together on College Green. But of course, because... I'm quite short, and Jeremy is obviously quite tall. The camera exaggerated this height difference even further, so we looked utterly ridiculous doing a joint interview on College Green. And it was a bit like, I mean, there was two of us, not three of us, but it kind of felt a bit like, you remember the John Cleese and the two Ronnie sketch of, I look down on him and he looks up to me. And I felt like Ronnie Corbett looking up at Jeremy. I'm not as short as Ronnie Corbett, but, you know, it felt a bit like maybe more Ronnie Barker in terms of my waistline, I don't know. But, I mean, it just sort of felt ridiculous like that. But, um, uh, but, <laughs> but you know, we I was very proud that as a shadow um, health secretary, I was able to make a little bit of progress on that front. It's interesting you mention him in that context, actually, because it always struck me watching when you two were going, you know, at it over the dispatch box. Again, you know, just to come back to it, he was head boy at a school called Charterhouse, which I gather from Wikipedia is one of the poshest places in the country. <laughs> just what do you feel like when you're coming up against people, you know, who've just come from the most privileged backgrounds you could imagine compared to what you sort of got yourself out of? I think um, I never let it intimidate me. I've got just as much right to be here as they are. I mean, the problem with this place is when you first get here as an MPE and you walk through the door and you look around you at the statues and you think to yourself, how on earth have I got myself here? And then when you've been here a few weeks and you've met lots of the other MPs, you start thinking to yourself, 
how the hell did they get here? <laughs> 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 and, and, and you know, you, I, I have a particular approach. I hope my opponents would agree. I always think, uh, play the ball, not the man. I'm always in favour of robust debate at the, across this batch box. But I never try. I never be personal, and I hope the different. You know, I've shadowed Jeremy Hunt, Matt Hancock, Sajid, Javed, Teresa Coffey. I never make it personal. I have a few, you know. I try and get some sort of witty barbs in there because I do think that the chamber you need a bit of. Um, you know, you can't just be angry. I think you've got to have a debate about the policies, really, and not not the personalities. That's always been my approach, anyway. Coming up after the break, John Ashworth talks through Labour's wilderness years in opposition and whether having grown up in poverty might make him a better work and pension secretary in the end. Stay with us. A message from Equinor. Back to that question. How can our turbines go where no wind turbine has gone before? They float. Floating wind turbines can harvest the stronger winds found further out to sea. They're already at work at High Wind Scotland, the world's first floating offshore wind farm. See how we're accelerating the UK energy transition at equinor.co.uk. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A message from Lloyd's Banking Group. Lloyd's Banking Group has championed social housing for decades. It provides finance, expertise and guidance to more than 340 housing associations across the UK. These range from small local associations of several hundred homes to much larger regional associations responsible for tens of thousands of properties. Each has an important role to play in their community to help people find a safe place to call home. Improving access to quality and affordable homes is central to Lloyds Banking Group's commitment to helping Britain prosper. That's why Lloyds Banking Group is calling for one million more homes to be made available for social rent over the next decade. You've, um, you've been in the shadow cabinet for ages now, haven't you? I mean, really, years and years and years. Has it been... Oh, do you make me sound like I'm past it? I'm, yeah. only, I'm only 43. You're, you're not past it, but I just think it's, you, you sort of grew up in government. Has it been weird spending so much time in opposition? I mean, it must be frustrating. I mean, it's absolutely awful. I hate it. I hate it because when you are in government, you can make a difference, right? You know, the Tony Blair, Gordon Brown government lifted a million children out of poverty. We were well on the way to abolishing child poverty, child poverty by 2020. We wouldn't have child poverty scarring the land in the way it is today if we'd have stayed in government. Our ambition was to abolish it by 2020. We lifted pensioners out of poverty. We got people back to work. And in opposition... All you can do is highlight the problems and point out solutions. So one of the things I'll give you an example of something I am particularly exercised about at the moment in this crisis is that to deal with where we are now, with inflation running at 10% and these big cuts 
to support that people are getting. People are really struggling, right? That's why we were calling for a windfall tax to protect people through the crisis. But you've also got to do something to get your economy really motoring. And one of the ways in which you can do that is that you get more people into work. But actually, those in overall employment is down half a million since the pandemic. There are a million more people on out-of-work benefits, economically inactive. There's a study from Sheffield Hallam University which suggests 800,000 of these people on out-of-work inactive benefits could be working if they were given the correct support and help. Now, I am a reformer, right? I want to reform this system to help these people move off benefits and into work. Now, I raised it yesterday at DWP Questions with Teresa Coffey, and she just said, well, they're not my priority at the moment. She said, my priority is the job seekers on universal credit. But well, that's fine. But you've got something like, uh, you know, three and a half million people on inactive benefits. You've got increasing numbers of over 50s leaving the labour market. You've got the highest levels of people on sickness benefits for 20 years. Many of these over 50s leaving the labour market tend to be men in lower paid jobs like wholesale or manufacturing and transport. You've got increasing numbers of parents not able to enter the labour market because childcare costs are so prohibitive and the universal credit system is not offering them support. So it's all very well, the government saying, you know, we're doing well on jobs. Well, actually, there's a whole bunch of people here who you are not doing anything to support them. Now, you shouldn't say, the answer isn't saying, well, we'll give them more, like, sanctions and cutting their benefits. The answer is to give those people support and help to move into the labour market, and that's a big reform plan I am working on. But if you're in government, you can do something about that. You can't do anything about it when you're in opposition. I'm sure you're right to identify the problem, but it is kind of a bit of an interminable problem, that one, isn't it? I mean, you've got practical ideas about how you can actually address it. Well, I think the Job Centre Plus system needs reform, so I want to build a modern employment service, because if you want to get inflation under control, you've got to increase your supply of workers. So this is a supply-side reform you've got to do, but you've also got to prepare your economy for the future, because we know that technological change will change the nature of work. It's already happening with automation. If we transition to net zero, that's a tremendous opportunity with new jobs. We've got to take advantage of the the green heat of modern technology. But we've also got an ageing population. So because because people are getting older, we will be short of 2.6 million jobs in the labour market over the next 10 years. But actually, if you had a system to support older people stay in work, and many of them would stay in work if they could find flexible work and they were given proper support, you could boost your economy by billions. There was a study from PricewaterhouseCoopers. You could benefit the economy by billions and billions and billions if you could increase the numbers of older workers in the labour market on the same level, say, a country like New Zealand. There are things that we can do to really give people the proper tailored employment support that they need and deserve. I was absolutely astonished when Theresa Coffey yesterday uh, said um, this isn't a priority for her. This absolutely has to be a priority if you want to get growth in your economy uh, and, and create prosperity and spread that prosperity. Labour's been talking about this kind of thing for years now and yet you still haven't been winning elections. Um, you never would have dreamed, I'm sure, when you lost the 2010 election that you'd be sat here in 2022, 12 years later, wondering if you might get into power in the next couple of years. No, I mean, you know, if you'd have told me in 2010, we'd have been um, out of power uh, for so long, I wouldn't have believed you. But why? Why is that? Why? What's gone wrong? Because presumably you're not going to tell me the voters got it wrong. So No, the voters never got it wrong. So, so what did Labour get wrong that, that's meant that the last 12 years we've had succession of well, Tory-led look, you know, you know, the Labour Party has made mistakes and the different mistakes we've made are, 
have been well rehearsed now in by different politicians, including myself, at different events. I think the question now is, what are we getting right for the future? And I think we are making significant progress. But it's not nailed on, is it? Yeah, I mean, even after all this time, and even with the Prime Minister this this unpopular, no one thinks that Labour are, you know, a shoo-in to win the next election. No, no, nobody thinks that. But this next election is competitive. And it's a much more competitive election than people uh, suspected would, would be the case when they saw that Boris Johnson got an 80-seat majority. And I think that the, the big issue for a lot of voters in Midlands and the North is that they gave Boris Johnson an 80-seat majority and he has squandered the trust they put in them because he has no mission and no plan for the future of the country. In contrast, the Labour Party under Keir Starmer's leadership will have a plan for the future of the country in the next election, a plan to spread opportunity across the country so that the life chances that are too often the preserve of just a privileged few are spread for the many and that we grow the economy by getting people into good, well-paying, quality jobs. I mean, 8 million people are in poverty even though they're in work. Well, come on, Ed Miliband said all this and Jeremy Corbyn said all this and the voters went, nah, don't think so. What's really changed? Well, I think, I think you see that we are talking about the issues which are impacting people day in, day out. And we will have a plan to spread prosperity. We'll have a plan to get more people into work. We'll have a plan to improve our schools, uh, improve our, uh, our national health service where there's 6 million people uh, on the waiting list. I would say the biggest issue that will, be fe- that will decide the next election is, is the, what we're now all calling the cost of living crisis. Do you think we should be spending more on welfare than we are now as a country? Well, it depends what you mean by that. The social security system is becoming ever more threadbare and it should support people to move into work. It should give people opportunity, but it should treat people with dignity and security. So, for example, pensioners, right? They should have been given the triple lock this year. The government broke their promise to pensioners and it means they've had a real terms cut of £500. We campaigned very hard against the £20 cut to universal credit, which was a cut for many families of £1,000. We will have a plan for universal credit, which I think you'll see fundamentally reforms it, because the problem of universal credit is not just the adequacy of the levels that people are given, it's that there are structural problems with universal credit. Let me give you two two examples. If you're a lone parent, or not not just a lone parent, any parent who wants to return to the labour market but uh, cannot afford childcare, in theory, you're supposed to get a proportion of your childcare costs covered by universal credit. It's not a huge amount. But you have to pay that childcare costs up front. The universal credit system will not do that. So already you've got parents who cannot go back into the labour market because the way in which the universal credit system works, it hits against them. That needs to be reformed. There are so many people on universal credit who are paying back because you have to wait five weeks for your first universal credit payment. So you end up taking out a loan. So you're already in debt to the system, right? And that debt drags you down again. So there are structural things in the system that can be changed to support people moving into work. But in terms of should people have an adequate level of support to live with dignity, of course they should. But, you know, we'll make our uh, financial plans closer to a general election when we know the state of the uh, the public finances. And, and just finally, having grown up using the welfare system, does that put you in a better place, do you think, to, to understand why people need it and to, to make policy on it? I don't know. I don't know. Uh, maybe, hopefully. I do know this, that you never forget growing up in poverty. 
it humiliates you and it does haunt you for the rest of your life and when you're poor everything else in life is more expensive and I'll tell you what I mean by that when you're poor you can't necessarily afford to drive to the big out-of-town supermarket where because of the economies of scale the shopping will be cheap in the supermarket you have to go to the local spa shop where the bag of pasta is probably 20 pence 30 pence more than it would be if uh, Asda's own brand pasta uh, and you'd have to drive uh, because you cannot you know you cannot get on the bus with lots of bags of shopping and in most places now the bus routes have been cut there's lots of different examples of how being poor makes everything else more expensive in life and that's why you end up turning to charities to food banks but nobody wants to do that people do feel humiliated and as I say it haunts you for the rest of your life it means you more likely to develop illness sooner in life you're more likely to live in a damp house which affects you affects your children you're more likely to have less space so your children cannot study properly and do their homework because they probably don't have a desk from which to do the homework from never mind the latest laptops or, or tablets you probably cannot help your children with their homework properly online because you cannot afford Wi-Fi or you've got limited 4G and you don't want to use your data on your phone or you've used up your data being in poverty sucks you down it drags you down now does that mean I'm going to be a better social security secretary I don't know but it sure as hell means I want to do something about it so that's Jonathan Ashworth the croupier's kid who made his parents proud when Westminster is derided with some justification, as an out-of-touch elite, it's worth remembering that there are people like Ashworth, or Angela Rayner, who I interviewed in season two of this podcast, or Sajid Javid, or David Davis, who had very different sorts of life experiences to the rest. Whether Ashworth can use that experience to help Labour reconnect with its old working-class base is a whole nother challenge that lies ahead. Thanks for listening to Westminster Insider with me, Jack Blanchard. If you've enjoyed it, do please subscribe for free wherever you get your podcasts. My producers this week were James Tyndale and Robert Nicholson of Whistledown Productions. And here at Politico, my executive producer is Christina Gonzalez. We'll be back next week. I'll see you then. It's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.